Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Paul. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. You and I have, uh, this is our second attempt at recording this conversation. In the process, we've gotten to know each other a little bit. Uh, You've even uh, helped me... uh, identify some great restaurants uh, in in the little small town where I'm doing some consulting work. So uh, we've developed some rapport and a little bit of a friendship here. Um, so I am delighted that uh, that we've got the technology cooperating for both of us here so we can have this conversation today. Uh, but before we dive into our topic, how we how about we just let you re how about we just let you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. Uh, first of all, I'm glad to be here and I have enjoyed our conversations. I hope the technology holds out. Uh, <laughs> you know, we're a slave to it. But yes, we are. If I had to describe myself, I am a recovering tax lawyer. Yeah. I practiced tax and estate planning law for 20 years in Louisiana and the greater New Orleans area until Hurricane Katrina. 
which changed my life unknowingly on August 29th, 2005. And the other thing I would say about myself is that I describe myself as a purposeful estate planner. Mm -hmm. I helped people take care of their needs as far as where they wanted their property to go when they wanted people to get it. But the most important part and what separated me as a purposeful estate planner was I wanted to make sure that what we did did either enhanced or didn't damage the relationships of those who survived the client. Because too many perfectly drafted estate plans rip family relationships apart because they don't pay attention to the the, the, the personal dynamics. And uh, I think it's sad. Too many estate planners engage in what I call the Jenny Craig estate planning method, which is they take the client's tax situation before they're planning and they see what the tax exposure is They put them through their planning paces, which reduces the tax. They take a before and after snapshot, declare victory, and move on without considering what the... I mean, a classic misstep. Putting a sibling as trustee for the benefit of another sibling. And that's a recipe for disaster. I mean, unless there's a a special need situation where someone is impaired, uh, simply taking a sibling in a normal family situation and making them in charge of the money and the cash flow over another sibling is going to end the sibling relationship. So and that's just one example. I mean, I mean, we're not here to talk about estate planning, but that's the bottom line is that purposeful, to me, it was very important. And when I got into development, I carried that purposeful aspect uh, on because it's just part of me. It's in, it's part of my DNA. Yeah. So, yes, right. And 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 that's sort of that's some of the stuff that we talked about uh, uh, on the previous recording that never made it to the air. Um, but you you also voiced some pretty profound uh, and very thoughtful opinions about. I think I think most of the conversation that we were having on that previous record, and forgive me for uh, forgive let listeners please forgive us that we were we were unable to broadcast that particular episode, but a lot of that conversation was about fundraising ethics, and um, and Paul, I got to be honest with you, in the two hundred and fifty plus episodes, I think we've had ethically related conversations. You can't have that many conversations that are not related to ethics and ethics certainly comes up, but there hasn't been a lot of robust conversations specifically about, you know, sort of diving into the ethics of what it is we're doing. And so, um, and, and, and I, as I shared with you a few moments ago, before we hit the record button, as I wrap up this current writing project, and I think about the, perhaps the next one, I think I want to do a little bit deeper dive into the ethics of fundraising. So where do we go with that? Well, for starters, I think that ethics plays a huge role in fundraising and 
and I'll give you one example. When I was the director of plan giving, I had a policy of not going to visit or pursue donors who had reached age 85. And part of the reason for that was my fear of being accused after the fact of undue influence. We have seen a number of very famous cases. Um, I'm trying to think of the New York uh, dilettante who ended up her last 15 or 20 years staying in a hospital that ended up getting the bulk of her estate. And the family objected. And my former boss, Vern Snyder, who was... He was my boss at the University of Toledo Foundation for two years. Vern was a better boss for me than I was for the 20 years when I was my own boss. But Vern had a saying that made great sense. He said that we have to remember that if the proverbial SHIT hits the fan... We're in the front row wearing white suits. And he's right. Because there is a... We as in in the fundraisers. Right, right, right. right. Because there is a tension, particularly in planned giving, between the family and the charity. Because what the charity gets, the family doesn't. Right. And, And I remember... Meeting with, and I was I was asked to attend a, a a luncheon in the president's office with an elderly donor, and the president had already tapped this donor for several million dollars ver- worth of lifetime gifts. Yeah, and he was all teed up to make another pitch. Well, the problem was the donor, when we met with him, was in his upper 90s. And even though he had full capacity and I was comfortable talking to him, despite my regular rule, he brought along two of his children. And we determined that the the donor had given away most of his wealth. And... The remainder of the wealth was held by the junior generation. Yes, and right. And the junior generation made it very clear during this meeting that they had no intention of sharing any more of that wealth with the <laughs> University of Toledo. Right. You're not it getting was, any more of my mom and dad's money is what they were saying. <laughs> right, right. And, and that's exactly right. We have to we have to be very sensitive to that, and you know, I mean, ethics issues in fundraising happen with great regularity. I mean, we've seen just recently these grateful patient programs, some of which yeah. stink stink to high heaven. I mean, they're paying doctors a referral fee for names of potential grateful patient donors. I mean. That's terrible. That shouldn't, I mean, the public should know about that. 
I mean, these are tax-exempt entities that enjoy a benefit granted by the law. And for that benefit, they have to follow some rules. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the, the whole grateful patient thing is walking right on the line of undue influence, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I, so part of, absolutely right. Yes. I, I, I just had a guest here on the podcast I and mean, we just, we, she'll, her conversation with me will broadcast a day or two before this one will. Um, and, and she was referring to, uh, highly intrusive, creepy sort of practices that ultimately, uh, diminish the, the joy that a fundraising professional sort of experiences in their work because she was basically saying most fundraising professionals really are not interested in some of the information that you're inclined to put in front of them prior to that bedside visit. But um, what occurs to me as I'm listening to you talk about that story, because I've been writing about sort of the complexity around charitable giving for quite some time as I work wrap up this current book project. And, and we all know that, you know, complex gifts tend to happen late in life. But the baby boomer generation is going to live, you know, my, my in-laws, my baby boomer in-laws, for example, are perhaps in better health than I'm in right now. They're going to live a lot longer and you're going to have you know, highly savvy. So you've got a, you got the boomer generation that's going to start giving away wealth in the ways that you're talking about, but you've got my generation sort of right on their heels who perhaps is going to be a more savvy sort of second gen, you know, sort of the inheriting generation, if you will, than perhaps even the previous generation. Um, and these people are going to live, you know, the boomer, the boomers have extraordinary health care available to them. So we're, we're talking, I guess what I'm saying is, Paul, we're probably looking at, at three or four decades right now of extraordinary complexity when it comes to these types of gifts. And, and that to me seems like that's going to just bring to the forefront all of the issues that you're starting to sort of unravel here in this conversation. Am I right? Oh, you're absolutely right. Because once again, there is a tension. There is a tension between where the wealth goes. Yeah. What the family doesn't get, the charity gets, and vice versa. Right. And the family, you know, Mark Twain said it best. He said, you never really know someone until you share an inheritance with them. And yeah. I learned when I was in the University of Toledo foundation family that we were temporary parts of our donors families and people would uh would talk about making this big gift with without consulting their children and i used to advise against that you know it people are motivated to make charitable gifts for a number of reasons. Yeah. Some of them are altruistic, but not all of them are. Some people love the attention they get. They like being uh, put on a pedestal. And unfortunately, that pedestal does isn't big enough to hold the family. The family might get a little benefit from the fact that mom and dad, I, I, mean, I had one, one, 
I wouldn't call him a donor, although he was a UT donor. But his dad was a professor at UT yeah. and left his entire estate to UT. Yeah. And the my, my friend always reminded me that we had his money. <laughs> I saw... So, Paul, I don't know if you saw this in the news. I saw this come across social media this morning. So, Western Michigan, University of Western Michigan, just received like a $550 million gift. $550 million gift, which I think, as I read the article, is the largest gift given to a public institute, you know, public university on record or whatever. Only only perhaps private institutions have gotten anything bigger. And they're going to receive that gift over the next 10 years. Um, it's an anonymous gift. You know, somebody obviously knows who's giving it. Uh, but when when you think about when you think about that type of wealth being given from what apparently is one individual family um, and you think about multiple generations, you think about a size of a gift that size, and it may not even be grandma and grandpa and the sons and daughters. It might also be grandchildren by the time, you know, by the time well, you talk about the complexity of the number of people around the table and the ethics of sort of who wants to have their say or who's entitled to their say in, uh, in some of these decisions, um, and you and, and going back to sort of like the you know the bedside manner sort of grateful patient stuff, um, highly reductionist in my opinion because you're focusing on one individual. There's no in, no individual at that sort of giving level. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but no individual at that giving level is making decisions independently. Am I right? Uh, well, it's possible they are if they created all the wealth themselves. But <laughs> yeah, with $550 million, you know, unless they came out of Silicon Valley or something, because, you know, in Silicon Valley, it's monopoly money. I mean, yeah, when I lived yeah. in Napa, when I lived in Napa, I, I routinely dealt with computer software engineers who one day were worth $150,000. And when the company went public, and their options vested, they were all of a sudden worth $300 million. And the transformation from 150000 to $300 million yeah. was substantial. And, and most of these people were not ready for that shock. Yeah. They were not, they psychologically could not come to grips with it. Some of them, actually I had two of them commit suicide. They just couldn't, it was too much. So unless they were in a situation like that, the odds are they inherited the money. And inheritors are more like stewards of family wealth. If they didn't, if they weren't the creators, they simply were the managers or the stewards of the wealth. And if somebody who happened to be the trustee or the current person who had the purse strings diverted a half a billion dollars to a state institution, I can easily foresee the family 
the other members of the family either crying foul or absolutely going bananas because that's a lot of wealth. And it's not to say that that Western Michigan isn't deserving. They were in the MAC. You know, I remember them and they were, they were in Toledo's conference. Yeah. But it's still strange credulity to, to conduct such philanthropy in a vacuum with just the donor. Yeah. Even though the donor may have the full legal right. Once again, I go back to Vern. It's the appearance of impropriety that is the worst part of it. You know, and and if someone is unhappy and they start casting accusations at the charity, yeah. The charity's in the charity's in a no-win situation. Because it benefited. And by benefiting is in part guilty. Even if even if the transaction passed full legal muster, the bottom line is, is that intergenerational communication, even among people who don't have any say, yeah. just notice. Give them notice. Yeah. Because once again, it's it's a bigger it, it's a bigger issue than who's right. It's the situation needs to be right. Because if the charity starts getting bad publicity, and once again, the hospital in New York, in this one case I'm thinking about, I mean, they took it on the chin. Yeah. I mean, they (laughs) held on for dear life, you know, because it was hundreds of millions of dollars. And unfortunately, when they did the trial... The prog- they showed the progression of the estate plan change history. And the charity share kept increasing over time, little by little by little, until it was a lot. And that doesn't look good, and it doesn't smell good. Now, the lady was living in the hospital. Yeah. And she probably had very fond feelings for people in the hospital. But the attention that the hospital foundation was paying her was inordinate. Looking at the facts of the case. As I, I've sp- I, I, I wish I could remember the name of it. I've written an article about it, but it was many years ago. So, Paul, uh, when you and I talked before, and I may have used this word, I may have used this word when you and I talked before. Um, when I talked to your, I don't want to, I don't want to sort of box you in in a generation, but I think you're, I think you're good for this. Um, when I talk to, when I talk to individuals like yourself, I hear angst. I hear angst about where you're looking at fundraising today and where fundraising was when you perhaps retired, sort of stepped away from the full time work. Can you unpack that for me? Sure. Um, I believe bluntly that fundraising in the United States is in the ditch. And okay, so I guess angst is a. a (laughs) and, And the reason for that, once again, I think it goes back. Well, well, what's the proof of my point? Job dissatisfaction 
among development people is at an all-time high. I mean, that's pretty clear. Yeah, and okay. The amount of movement, job movement from job to job, the average length of tenure of a development person, I want to say the last statistic I saw was somewhere around two years. You're right. Right. And, and there's, I mean, the one of the reasons for that is, and it goes back to ethics. I think that, I think that, um, unfortunately, too many of the development officer metrics today measure things that don't count. And they hold development professionals to meet requirements that are really not important. Just because it can be counted doesn't mean it's worth counting. And I I blame that all on moves management. Because yeah. they basically, and it's not moves management as a theory that's the problem. Yeah, it's the it's the you got to have fifty qualification visits and thirty five discovery visits. I mean, it's it's the attempted an- analyzation of development as sales and development quite frankly, is not sales, and it will never be sales. And a development professional who is forced into the sales model, by and large, is not going to be happy. And this Why is, is that? Cool. I, 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 could, I, couldn't agree, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and I have to say that the, 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 when I look back on my nearly now 25 years doing this work, um, you know, it's never been it. You know, I think we've all had our sales like experiences where we're literally sitting across the table from a donor and we feel we almost feel like a used car salesman, you know. Um, but but why why is that? Because because I think you're on to something there. Why is it that 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 notion that fundraising is like sales ultimately is going to let us down? It's going to let you down because in truth. It's not a philanthropy is not a two way is not a two way exchange. Yeah. You can say, you know, the donor gets feeling good and he gets altruistic feelings and yeah. uh, some attention and all this kind of thing, but it's it's ultimately the donor's money. In a yeah. sales transaction, you've got something that I want at a certain price and I've got the cash or wherewithal to buy what you have at the price I want. If we have a meeting of the minds, there's a sale. Yeah. And I get the product and you get the cash, but in philanthropy, I I just, there are aspects of sales that, are consistent and and actually help with development. Sure, right. There there certainly are aspects of it that help. But trying, you know, I've seen development shops look to sales professionals as potential development officers. And without some 
acclamation as to the differences between the two endeavors, which once again, I believe are very different in essence. Yeah. You're going to, what you're going to end up with is either a rogue fundraiser who has casual moral ethics about getting a gift because it's all about making the sale. Yeah. And you'll say whatever you want to say or need to say because it's the ends justifying the means. And that's a problem in in philanthropy because if a donor is coerced into making a gift, either a larger gift than they would have made or making a gift that they wouldn't have made, but for the coercion, there's yeah. this little thing called donor's remorse. And it's real. Mm-hmm. And, 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 not, and not only can a donor have a remorse, but the family can have a remorse. And you can actually be penny-wise and pound-foolish by forcing a gift that in the end causes the loss of the relationship with the donor. And to me, once again, I strived, and maybe it's just my ethical training as an estate planner, and and one who cared deeply and cares deeply about ethics and doing the right thing. Yeah. Um, but those those matters are 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 very very important because it's about the long term benefit. I used to tell that because I was in a position to give, and in part because of my age and and life experiences, I was able to give advice and counsel to some of the younger development people. Yep. And I would always tell them, take view every potential step with respect to a donor through the lens of, is this in the donor's long-term best interest? And I will tell you that my advice conflicted with the advice they were getting from their own bosses and our foundation. <laughs> course see see if you connect the dots see when i talk to a guy like you when i talk to anyone who, who shares opinions like yours and i and i get the because we we have these conversations a couple times a week when i connect the dots between the critique that you're making when we're talking about ethics and when we're talking about the practical use of well screening tools and you know grateful patient programs and um when when I connect the dots, I basically see, and this is kind of the underlying message in my forthcoming book, is that I'm seeing a fundraising profession that has basically decided that the donor and the consumer are one and the same. And somehow or another, we've just sort of assumed, oh, and, and when things like sales come up, you know, obviously, when when the notion of sales comes up, we haven't even critically thought through the idea that we just think that the the donor is a consumer because everything else in our modern 20th century sort of worldview says to us that we're basically consumers and when i look at when i look at healthcare when i look at i'm a professor over at the local college when i look at some of the critiques that are are being levied at healthcare and education and 
everywhere else in the world, probably in the legal community too, it's because they've all sort of co-opted this idea that that who they're serving is a consumer, but the consumer definition of a human being doesn't necessarily work all that much always. Um, you know, when I think of you as an attorney, I'm guessing that you didn't necessarily always look at the person across the table, you know, your client necessarily is a consumer. Um, I like to think in many cases, what we're doing in philanthropy is we're looking at citizens. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? Well, you're absolutely right. And once again, you know, by taking only taking steps that you are calculated and have considered to be in the donor's long-term best interest, yeah, the donor's interest be preserved. Yeah, and and for for me, I, I mean, well, I'll give you one example. And I ruffled some feathers at the foundation for doing this. <laughs> we had a couple in their early 60s, and their net worth was somewhere between 7 and $10 million. And I'm not sure exactly why I got involved, but I was asked to attend a meeting, and the donor had been teed up for a million dollar, roughly a little over a million dollar gift of marketable securities. And in my estate planning experience, red flags went off. These people were too young and didn't have enough money, in my opinion, to give away a million dollars of liquidity. And what I remember, I had a client, Jason, who sold a shipyard in New Orleans in 1981 at the height of the oil boom. Oil busted in 1982, but he sold his shipyard for $35 million. Now, obviously, there was capital gains tax to pay and whatnot. Yeah. He had, he had four, and I'll be charitable here, reprobate children. And they all fashioned themselves as entrepreneurs. And they all wanted to try this business and that business. And that required capital. Dad wasn't willing to part with it, but he was willing to guarantee debt at the bank. And and frankly, he had enough collateral where the bank gladly did that deal. Well, fast forward to 1995, 14 years later, when Charlie died. He had other assets when he sold the shipyard. So it, his his estate at, at, in 1981 was much bigger than $35 million. I mean, he had large tracts of development land, too. When I did his federal estate tax return, his net estate was a little over $3.5 million. The rest of it didn't go to taxes. It went to pay the banks for the bad loans that he made or he guaranteed for his kids. Yeah. Things happen. These people were in their early, I mean, I think the husband was 63 and the wife was 62. They have a long life expectancy. And the million dollars, it was like a million and forty thousand dollars. It was a stock, uh, an appreciated stock holding, concentrated. It was one stock. 
and they had a high capital gain potential in it. And so they had been talked into parting with this. Too many things can happen late in life. The stock market could go down. Your health could go to hell. And I saw it as part of my ethical responsibility, not only to the donors, but to my employer to intervene. And I suggested, as an alternative, a blended gift where they cut the size of the current gift from a little over a million dollars to a quarter of a million dollars. And they left roughly a, a, a testamentary bequest at the survivor's death of about two million more dollars. Now, this meant that my foundation walked away with $750,000 less cash. Yeah, right, sure. But, and, and to be honest, when I proposed it, thankfully, I didn't have, it happened so quickly that I didn't have a chance to talk to my colleagues about my idea because I was just in this meeting for the first time. But I expressed discomfort with them parting with what was, in essence, about 85% of their liquidity in one fell swoop. Because mm-hmm. the rest of their assets, they had a closely held business, uh, mm-hmm. and those are subjectively valued. Yeah. And and who knows how the cash flow from that business is going to continue. Now, those tend to be okay because they tend to be okay run and less risky than a stock portfolio when you don't understand the market. But, and it was just my ethical training. When I suggested the other, the donors kind of initially, I think they had, they had committed in their mind to making the million-dollar gift, but I think more importantly, receiving the accolades, the public accolades for having made, you know, I'm, when you cross that million-dollar threshold and the charity's able to go public with a, a gift that is a million dollars or more, um, that catches people's attention. A yes, quarter of a right. million-dollar gift... Not as much. Yeah. Even though that's a significant gift. But to me, these these people lacked the wealth. I mean, I have a a totally different view of what constitutes a wealthy person than most. For me, you're not wealthy unless you have passive, spendable income not from work, equal to five times your current need and a minimum of $25 million worth of net worth. And and sometimes, depending on the asset, I might raise that $25 million to even double it. 
Okay. So it's part of the, so if, if we jump back to your comment earlier that fundraising is in some ways is in a ditch, uh-huh. is some of this, is some of this because, okay. So, so if I've got, if I've either got someone like yourself with the perspective, the perspective on wealth and planned gifts, you know, every, all the perspective you sort of bring to it. And then I also bring to the table a 28 to 30 year old young person who basically is sort of in the mindset that they're basically just trying to close a deal really quickly. Um, are we basically just talking about a profession that has got to, um, that has just got to grow up and, and sort of figure out sort of who is the right person in these. Here's the thing, Paul, when I came into this role, when I came into fundraising at about the turn of the century, um, there were hordes, every conference I went to, there were planned giving officers. But I remember after September 11th, for example, and especially as we creeped closer and closer to the recession, we stopped, for example, having planned giving officers on the payroll Um I started sort of hearing this narrative that this was sort of playing out, that the planned giving roles were sort of being phased out or they were being morphed into the individual giving or the major gifts department or whatever. Um, and I just I just wonder if we even know how to sort of flip that switch back on now um, and if we even have the type of talent that we need. Um, and I'm looking, I'm listening to a guy like you, Paul, and I'm thinking, okay, if I ask you to put on the cap of a donor, instead of being wearing the cap of a, um, of a, uh, a fundraiser, if you sort of, if, if your sort of perspective on this sort of is representative of the quintessential donor that we're interacting with, I don't think you're the same donor that perhaps your parents were you know, 15, 20 years ago when perhaps they might've been giving the same types of gifts. I think, I think that's part of the messiness that I think we've got to anticipate in the next several decades too. Well, you follow me? Yeah. Your, your point about a decline in the number of dedicated plan giving professionals is, is, is accurate. In fact, yeah. when I left the university of Toledo foundation, I was the only full-time dedicated plan giving officer in Greater Toledo in Northwest Ohio. And right. I I right. served I served two terms as president of our local National Council on Charitable uh, National Committee of Charitable Plan Gifts. Uh I served two terms as president that council disintegrated because the membership went away when we disbanded we had like 18 members and 11 of them were on the board and (laughs) and unfortunately that is my earpiece fell out but i don't know if i can get it um unfortunately the talent, you raise the point about the talent. Yes. And too often a development person will go for a smaller current gift and avoid discussing a planned gift because they don't know much about planned gifts, or at least they don't think they do. 
And what I used to tell our team, because I was in charge of educating them, yeah. was eight, more than 80% of planned gifts are bequests. And those right, are pretty yeah. simple. Yeah, yeah. I maintain that a planned giving person should know more about planned giving marketing than about a, how a charitable remainder trust works. Because I think I managed fewer than 10 of them. I yeah. had no lead trusts. So the bottom line is that too many development people leave money on the table. And just to close the loop on that story, the donors agreed to my plan. And at the at the final meeting, the wife, the husband had run the, the, the show. The yeah. wife is the one who thanked me. Even though she said, yeah, we ended up, we made a bigger commitment than we were going to make, but you were looking after our long-term best interest. And she acknowledged my effort. My effort was obviously in part to help protect them, but it was also to protect the foundation. Because... Had those people parted with 85% of their liquidity and then had a a market adjustment or a health plan, they're going to have donor's remorse. And if anything, the relationship between the donor and the foundation would have suffered. That's why I'm such a harper about you got to think about what's in the donor's long-term best interest. Because I believe that if you're if the charity is in alignment with the donor's long-term best interest, that's the charity's long-term best interest too. Okay, Paul. So remember what I said a few minutes earlier. I said I, I talked to I talked to individuals like yourself who I I pick up this angst. I call it angst. Um, and that may not be the consistent word. I remember talking to a woman, for example, who's probably about the same age as you are, who's in the southwest corner of Virginia, down in the Roanoke area. And I remember exchanging a long thread of conversation. She had spent a lot. She spent a lot longer in fundraising than perhaps you have. Um, and I remember just sort of picking up on this angst. But what I, I guess what I'm also asking is, or what I'm what I'm interested, sort of a, a, a sort of a way to wrap up this conversation. If there's a small grassroots organization in Toledo, are they wiser to figure out how to enlist you to work for them part time to help them raise some serious money rather than hire that 28 year old who is going to approach this like sales? Uh, the answer is yes. Um. Because you're going to be, let me say this, Paul, you're going to be, a, I, I, I know you well enough to know that you're going to be a pain in the ass to supervise, but I kind of wonder, <laughs> I kind of wonder if, if we could teach, if we can teach these shops, if we can teach these EDs how to understand sort of in between the lines of everything you've said with, uh, said for, with me here in the last 45 minutes, and they knew how to appropriately supervise you strategically I think you could bring more value to the organization. And I think that's there's a whole cohort of people out there that have this angst that if these grassroots organizations knew how to sort of lead and supervise these people, they could be they could be raising remarkable amounts of dollars 
And a lot of the donors we're talking about are your peers. They're your peers that are going to be giving away these gifts. Well, well, you're you're right. And, and let me give you a simple idea that I have given to several smaller charities that have sought my counsel. Yeah. Put together a list of your top 50, your top 100, whatever the number is, 250. Yeah. Write a personal letter. Yeah. Tell them that you are in the business of accepting bequests. Sure. You don't even have to make an ask. You can just tell them that, and and if you want to go into a story about, because bequests are far greater likely, uh, far greater likelihood of being a transformational gift to a small organization than an annual gift or even a major gift. If you did that, and I mean, think about the resources it would take to write. Yeah, you sign a hundred letters, and you put a hundred <laughs> stamps on them. But I promise you, the return on that small effort—I hate to yeah. call it an investment because it's not. Yeah, it's simply making people aware. Most donors are not aware. That like their local food bank. I'll just pick on the food bank. Yeah. The food banks are always in need. Yes. If they, I mean, and they have some very, very enthusiastic donors and volunteers. And if they took a letter to their top hundred prospect, you know, donors, prospects, and they just simply let them know. Because right now they're not thinking about them as a as a as a bequest area. They're thinking of them as the hundred dollar end of year check, or right. well, and that's I mean that's sad, but it's true. It doesn't take you don't need because in my opinion one and and, and I realize we're 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 running short of time, but I believe that. Development today is in the ditch in part because development professionals are forced to bother the donor too much. Okay, they but you're, pers- but you're, they you're pursue, not answering. They pursue the donor, and the donor gets uncomfortable. And 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 you know, you talked about wealth screening. Most yeah. donors don't even realize the amount of research that your average charitable organization does on its donor base. And I will tell you that if they knew, many of these donors would be offended. See, the, the woman at the... So let's say that, let's say the woman or the gentleman that's running the local food bank. Th- this is what I'm trying to convey. Listening to you, agreeing with you that in many ways fundraising finds itself in the ditch understanding and sort of anticipating where planned giving opportunities are, you know, connecting all the dots and kind of sort of connecting all the dots in this conversation and seeing what the opportunity is. I'm, I, I guess what I, I, what I really want to hear from you, Paul, as we wrap up is what, what does Sally who runs the local food bank need to know about you, Paul, so that she can leverage your strengths, your giftedness now, say for another 10 years easily 
um, perhaps better than that young 28-year-old who, like I said a few minutes ago, thinks fundraising is sales? Well, first of all, I'm not sure how much of my time she needs. I, I agree with you, right? She and, probably and, and doesn't my, need a lot of it. Right. right. And, and, and to be honest with you, I think that, you know, I, I can certainly be invaluable in helping them craft the sure. right message in the letter. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the I mean, the foundation, these smaller charities all have current strong needs. I mean, many of these people are raising money to keep the lights on. Yeah. And yeah. spending money on a development person that is in many ways going to alienate or aggravate the very people you're trying to get money from, you might well be better off having another event coordinator or a, <laughs> well, well, I mean, and seriously, you know, I, I, mean, I agree with Right. I, I totally, and that's, that's what, is, is that, that, that's what my first book is about. It's about, it's about this younger generation. It's about a younger generation of young people that are coming into the marketplace that are, you know, in the workplace. And, and I'm not talking about fundraisers, fundraisers in particular, but they have all sort of naive assumptions about the expediency and the efficiency with which some of this can get done. And, but there's extraordinary efficiency. If I can convince Sally at the food bank, for example, to enlist the help of Paul, who probably you only need a quarter, you know, you know, a fraction of his time um, to sort of make this stuff work. But but I think with the challenge that we're faced with right now when it comes to fundraising is, and I think that critique that fundraising is in the ditch doesn't have as much to do with you or even that 28-year-old. It has to do with how, getting Sally's head on straight as to how all this works. She has, a, she, he or she, the woman running the food bank, has a notion about how this works that's not consistent with what you and I are trying to describe. Well, you're exactly right. And, 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 and unfortunately... It's because people who are supervising the fundraisers have never raised a dime themselves. And they right. view and this yeah, as a bottom line consideration. And, you know, all this talk, and you see it in the charitable world, we have to demonstrate a, you know, our return on investment. And they blame it all on the millennials. Um and everybody's made these great efforts to quite quantify how much each dollar given to them translates into meals served or whatever. But yeah. to me, a lot of that is misplaced because the bottom, I mean, to me, the, the bottom line is that many of these people supervising development professionals are not development savvy. And right, they're right. they're focused on the wrong things, you know. Right. I heard about the only person who made an offhand comment to me about not getting three quarters of a million dollars immediately was the CPA president of the foundation. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Paul, Even though we... I was doing something that was in the foundation's long term best interest. She couldn't see that initially. I mean, she may have seen it on some level, but not on the most important level. Yeah. 
Paul, we've had your attention for 55 minutes. We lose our listeners at about 45, so they might have, they might not have even uh, Sally at the food bank might not have even uh, picked up on my uh, novel idea there a few minutes ago. But uh, if there's somebody who's listening to our conversation today, they want to reach out to you and perhaps continue the conversation. They know how to find me, but they want to reach out to you. How would you suggest that they do that? Uh, my website is paulhoodservices.com. And my email is paul at paulhoodservices.com. I'm on LinkedIn as L. Paul Hood Jr. And I'm always willing to help development, charitable organizations, as well as development professionals, because I am concerned that, that we've lost our way. and We are back in the dark ages. Paul, it's certainly been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.